folks, and welcome to Starbase 66, your international Star Trek and genre fiction podcast. I'm Rick, and I have three amazing guests here tonight. They are the hosts of the Stars and a Foundation podcast. Is that the, the did I get all the words in there in the right order? Something sure. like that. <laughs> uh, John, Dan, and Joseph, welcome to the Starbase. Hello. Thank, thank you, you, Rick. Now, full disclosure, folks, uh, th- we did this, actually recorded this show, ooh, four months ago? Something like Something that. Something like that. Um, you, you may have heard <laughs> the lament on the wind. Uh, I, I recorded a bunch of shows on, on here on StreamYard and uh, didn't realize that they only had a, a, a shelf life of 15 days and lost four shows and went into a spiral of depression and I'm only just now pulling out of it. Uh, <laughs> so um, we are redoing this now with the benefit of I have no clue what we talked about before. <laughs> so, so it all seem fresh. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, Joseph and I know each other from way back. We went to high school together uh, back in the di- days of the Demetrodon. Um, and uh, uh, several, well, geez, how long have y'all been doing the show now? Since April. April 26th, I think. Okay. So, um, so well, I, I tell you what. Uh, your, your show is about Foundation, the, the Asimov books. Uh, why don't you give the wonderful folks at home a, 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 a nutshell of what your show is? John, this is usually your area. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, we started the show um, anticipating the TV show from Apple+. Plus. Uh, we didn't know much about it. We had at the time we had one trailer. We had a list of some members of the cast. We had a mutual love of the written series that we had all read pretty much as teenagers. Some of us at different times than others. I, for example, read them in the 1970s. And uh, I think it was Dan, really, who came out and said, hey, this TV show's coming out. Does anybody want to do a podcast with me? And we were all in a kind of a loose Star Trek group on Twitter. And Joseph and I answered enthusiastically and said, yeah, we'd love to do that. And what we did was, anticipating the TV series, we started out by reading the books of the original series in pieces. And that's Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation by Isaac Asimov, in case anybody doesn't know that. And what we did was we we read a section for each show, and we had a talk. We just kind of geeked out about it at every show. We did a little bit of Asimov trivia. Um, We started to think about having guests just in anticipation of the TV show. And the way things worked out, we got to the end of Second Foundation with one show to spare. And we used that show as a kind of a preview. What do we think the TV show is going to be like? What do we expect? What are we hoping for? And then the TV show started. And when that happened, we went from a bi-weekly podcast to a weekly podcast so that we could cover every episode of the show. The show would come out basically late Thursday night, although they claimed it was really Friday. We would watch the show, we would absorb it, we would do a podcast on Saturday, edit it on Sunday, get it out on Monday, and repeat uh, for the for you know for 10 weeks. Or it was really nine weeks because the first uh, two episodes came out together. Uh, now the show is, the first season of the show is over, and we are going to go back to reading the books. So we're going to, after uh, a little bit of debate. We decided to go back to the prequels, which were actually written last because it went original series, then sequels, then prequels. But we're going to read the prequels, which are Prelude to Foundation and Forward to Foundation. I think the reason why we decided to do that is because some of the material for them from the prequels made its way into the TV show, whereas the sequels really didn't. So we're going to go back to reading. We're going to go back to bi-weekly. We're going to continue to have guests. Uh, during the, the run of the show, we had a, a, a few guests, which seemed like a very popular format to kind of bring in somebody with a different point of view from ours. And the whole thing's been very free form, but it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I think we've learned a lot and um, we've really enjoyed ourselves. And it's a, it's a ton. I really enjoy the show. Now, uh, of course I have not listened to the show since the, the series started because I didn't want to spoil it because even though I've read all the books, uh, granted a long time ago, uh, you only have to watch one trailer to know, they're not very much like the books at all. Are, well, let, let me ask you, without going into into details, uh, how how closely do they hew to the books? It, it's uh, it's back and forth. I mean, if you watch the first episode of the show, 
you go, oh, that's that's you know that's following the books, and there's there's a trial scene, and there's all the there's there's Hari, you know, some of the characters are are changed around a little bit, but you can kind of recognize it. And then the second episode, which came out at the same time as the first episode, is basically covered by one sentence of Asimov, and it's an entire episode of the show, yep. and it's all <laughs> filled in by by David Goyer, and um, it it kind of goes back and forth, and it meets the show at various points. Um, and we talk a lot about what's different about the show and, and, uh, from the books. Um, some of the things are, are fantastic. Some of the things we didn't like so much. Um, as far as spoilers go, though, I have to say, we our attitude on spoilers is you shouldn't be listening to our podcast if you're not watching the show. So if you don't want spoilers, don't listen to the podcast. Which is why I have it. Um, right. But for, for, for this particular show, I'd like to keep things as, as general as possible. We can do um, that. <laughs> uh, Dan, when did you first read Foundation? Yeah, I, I think I must have uh, picked it up in the early 80s. I think like a lot of people, I you know, I joined this science fiction book club and then mm -hmm. they had this this gift of the huge bound uh, hardback volume of, of the original trilogy. Um, and that's kind of what got me going on it. And you know, I think it was, uh, you know, it's, it's a great book to discover like in your tweens, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, when you don't, you don't have any of the cynicism of like old middle aged guys <laughs> like we are now. Um, and, but it, 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 there's a, this quality of, um, you know, possibility and imagination and speculation. Um, I think there's a lot of ways in which it isn't really great literature, but it, it's a great stimulus to thought for, for someone who's entering their teens. And so that's the age at which I encountered the books. And, um, and I, I really, I was immediately taken with them. It didn't hurt that my dad was, had read the books many years earlier. And so I could talk about it with my dad as well. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it was, um, it's been something that stayed with me and I've, you know, every every ten years, I think I've just gone back and reread this the whole series. Um, it's just one of those things that that's kind of sticks around in my life. So I was really, really happy to see the adaptation, uh, distant an adaptation <laughs> as it may be <laughs> in some ways. Um, but uh, I've been having a lot of fun watching the series as well. Cool, Joseph. What about you? Uh, well, I've actually, I've had, I have a bit of a hard time pinning down exactly when I read the book, but it had to have been in um, seventh or eighth grade, probably eighth grade. So we're talking 78, 77, 78, uh, because I know, uh, I know I had them read by ninth grade. I know I read them from the Lake Worth Public Library. Um, so it had, to, it had to have been in there. I, I got into Arthur Clarke because um, uh, Dan Axtell loaned me uh, Wind from the Sun. Um, in seventh grade, and this was just one of the many, many things that I picked up um, on following that. But um, unlike Dan, I read Foundation once, loved it, read it once, um, mm -hmm. and so I had a lot of fun going back to it because there's large chunks of it that I didn't remember in detail. And I've, you know, the, these guys seem to have encyclopedic knowledge compared to me on the on, on the series. And uh, honestly, I. I um, I read through Foundation and Earth when that came back out, and then the ending, I like threw up my hands like, ah! So I haven't read the prequels, so I'm looking forward to those. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you and I had a, had a, a similar... Uh, uh, well, uh, I read it in high school. Well, first of all, I think it's, it's important to note uh, a bit of serendipity here, in that as we record, today is Arthur C. Clarke's, was it 101st? 104th. He was born in 1917. 104th birthday. And the first hard science fiction book that was not Star Trek related that I ever read was Rendezvous with Rama at your uh, recommendation. You you turned me on to Clark, and uh, he's still my, my favorite author. I mean, you know, he's kind of dead, so he hasn't been doing a whole lot lately, but... <laughs> I love I um, love Rendezvous with Rama, and you know they they just said that Dennis Villeneuve, who did Dune, yeah. is going to do Rendezvous with Rama, and I'm my mind boggles because 
the one thing I've always thought about Rendezvous with Rama is you couldn't make a movie out of it because nothing happens. Nothing happens, yeah. It's fantastic yeah. if you're into like the concept of scientific exploration. And wouldn't you love to be the guy who lands on, on Rama and opens the door and gets in and sees all this inexplicable stuff? But like, where's the movie? I mean, I, I hope <laughs> that they're not going to incorporate the sequels. Because oh, the sequels yeah. do oh, answer a lot of those questions about Rama, but unfortunately, not necessarily in the best of ways. I like. Well, okay, I like. I read them. Rama too. I read them. I went right um, through them, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> I think they were fantastic. So, I, you know, I, I have to say that Nicole Desjardins, who you may or may not even remember her from the books, was my first literary crush. <laughs> uh, I just I fell in love with I you know fell in love with the character. Um, yeah, Rama. The, the 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 Rama sequels eventually became "Man is the worst monster in the universe," <laughs> and I, you know, just gets so boring after a time. But um, but yeah, Rendezvous with Rama is a great book. I reread that every few years. Uh, let me warn anyone that the the audio book of it that's on Audible is absolutely horrible. Um, Do you know who who reads it? I, I, I don't know offhand, but for some reason, apparently somebody told them this is science fiction, so so read it like you're a robot. I couldn't finish the book. I, I, I returned it after like maybe an hour and a half. I just couldn't take the guys reading. It was so awful. Um, but I love the book. It's, it's a fantastic book, and I love Arthur C. Clarke. Um, and uh, so happy birthday in absentia. <laughs> Um, my my introduction 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 to uh, <laughs> foundation was science fiction book club. You get this big tome <laughs> with the the checkerboard cover, and uh, and also Dan Axtell, our, our he was a, a a guy that Joseph and I went to high school with, who was like one of those dudes who was just like too smart for the world, and. Uh, he would always rave about the Foundation trilogy and about Dune, and so I assumed I would never ever be able to uh, to, to comprehend either book. Um, you know, I have since found that Foundation is actually very simple, uh, and Dune is one of my all-time favorite books. Um, uh, you know, it, it it's it's funny when I I try to think back to the mindset where I was intimidated by a book, uh, and I you know I I can't remember that anymore but at the time i was just like terrified to try to read these you know dune has appendices for god's sake <laughs> how can any mere mortal understand this um and now i i read that almost annually too um speaking of what have you all seen the the, the new movie yes the Nueve's dune i have seen it no i'm gonna need to read the book first I, well, it's extremely faithful to the book. Yeah, it is. And what I'll here is my review of the new Dune. It's fine. Fine. <laughs> it's probably as close as you can get without it being a you know a, a, a fourteen hour excursion. I mean, if you think about it, he he has taken two and a half hours to do the first half of the first book. Mm-hmm. And so he really is kind of allotting himself 15 hours to get through the trilogy. So it kind of is a 14, 15 hour excursion. Yeah. And maybe I saw it on TV at home, maybe on a big IMAX screen, it would have been more impressive. But um, yeah, I, we, I we watched it, was, it, it was at home fine. too. It was fine. You know? <laughs> Whereas the, the 1984 Dune is a major trauma in my life. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that, that's how I actually read the book because the, the Lynch's Dune came out and I went to see it and left the theater going, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> what a cast. What a cast. Oh, yeah. Jose Farrar. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, just, the, and the, the, you know, the, 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 the vistas and the scenes and everything. And the movie was, you know, I, just, uh, it's, I can't, I don't even have words for it. <laughs> I, I think I might have asked you all this the first time. Have you seen the documentary Hodorowski's Dune? Only in bits of it. It's and, really worth watching. And just remember, to see the he went we to the studio and said, "I need fourteen to twenty hours, or whatever it was." And they were like, "Sure, you have ninety minutes, you know." And, and, <laughs> yeah. But that it has to be done over a very long period of time. I liked sci-fi's much less ambitious miniseries of doing. There, there were things about it that were really good. There were things about it that was like, 
why are they doing this? <laughs> I, you know, I had pretty much resolved my, uh, resigned myself that uh, Dune was just unfilmable. And I'm not entirely unconvinced of that yet, but I think the, this, this new one, it, it does a really good job of kind of skittering over the surface of the story and hitting yeah. you know, but again, some of the main it's, points. It's fine. It's fine. But the question that I find myself asking is, what does it add? What, you know, why is it there? I mean, it, it does, one answer to that is it adds visuals, you know, that you, you can only get in reading, you can only get your own visuals. Um, and so it does add that. But outside of that, I don't, you know, I don't see it. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of taking these science fiction classics and trying to film them. But I just came out of do you know, out of doing going, nothing's been added to my, my sense of this, of this work. You're, you're not wrong. Um, especially because a lot of the, the real impact of Dune takes place below the surface in, in the characters' heads and stuff. Mm. On the surface of it, it's just a, you know, it's, it's kind of your archetypal white savior sort of trope. Um, I don't know if he started it, but, you know, he's certainly one of the originators. <laughs> um, but it's all of the, it's all of the political intrigue and the, and the religious, you know, uh, stuff going on that really sets it apart, I think. And I'm not so I'm not so sure that's going to translate all that well into film. No, I mean I, I you know I think that was one of the biggest problems with Lynch with Lynch's version of it was that he wanted to get inside the characters' heads because so much of the book is inside the characters' heads, and what he wound up doing was having people mumbling to themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and chanting to themselves as so that you could see what was going on in their head, and it wow did that not come off the way <laughs> yeah. I think he might have intended? It came off so bad. Well, it's like there there isn't a single throwaway line in the whole movie. Every syllable is important. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now, okay, so you, you said that you're going to be moving on to the, the, the prequel books now? Mm -hmm. um, That's right. So we'll probably, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll start with uh, Prelude to Foundation, we will then do forward the foundation. And then I think if we finish those and we have a lot, probably have many months left, we might as well dive into the sequels. Uh, but we could, I, although, you know, there are one of the options we have is that there were three books in universe written by other authors. That's which true. Take place. I believe somewhere in the time frame of the prequels or the transition from the prequels to the original series. So we'll have some, we'll have to have a chat about that. I, I don't think any of us have read any of those books, no. No. Uh, but they are, they are, they were specifically commissioned to be in the same universe and in, in that time frame. So it, it might be worth checking them out. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll find out after we, after we read the prequels. And, and they seem to get interestingly mixed reviews, I think. Mm. I can't remember if I've read them or not now. I don't know anyone who has, to be honest. <laughs> what, 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 sound like a written recommendation. Were they written after Asimov died? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think David now, the, Brin the, was one. Um, was oh, Silverberg really? one? Uh, no, Silverberg did the the uh, the expansion of Nightfall. Right. Right. Actually, he did two other things too. He also they also expanded the uh, the Bicentennial Man and um, what's the third one? The probably the Ugly Little Boy. Mm. So, what um, for folks who haven't necessarily heard about Foundation? What? <laughs> Sorry, I just I just got stuck for a second. Um, what is the Foundation trilogy, as we call it? Even though it was, that's not. I guess that's not what it was called originally. No, I mean it, it was originally uh, a series of short stories, more or less commissioned by John W. Campbell. <laughs> That a very young Isaac Asimov, I mean, he was 21 in 1941 when the first story was published. Uh, Asimov became fascinated with the, uh, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon and the whole concept of the rise and fall of empire. And he wanted to explore it in science fiction stories. And Campbell really encouraged him to attack the entire concept rather than looking at just a small aspect of it, do the whole thing. So Asimov started writing these short stories, and the, the great innovation was that the, the protagonist, in a way the protagonist, was a guy who came up with a statistical method 
of predicting the behavior of large groups of people. And it's a, a mathematician named Harry Seldon. And he discovers through his new mathematics, which is called psychohistory, that the great galactic empire, which has stood for 12,000 years, is going to fall. And there's going to be a 30,000 year period of chaos. And Seldon goes to the empire and says, if you listen to me and do what I say, I can reduce that period of chaos, that interregnum from 30,000 years to 1,000 years. Which, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like the greatest, you know, uh, TV thing. Oh, yes, I can, I can reduce this chaos from, from 30,000 to 1,000. But he says, if you allow me to form a foundation that will gather all of human knowledge together into a great encyclopedia, then when the fall comes, we will be able to disseminate that knowledge back out into the galaxy and shorten the chaos. Now, it turns out that the story that he gives the Empire is not exactly what he's really going to do. The encyclopedia is, yeah, it, 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 I won't spoil it too much for people who haven't seen it, but um, they do wind up forming this foundation out in the periphery of the galaxy on a planet called Terminus. And a, a little bunch of scientists goes out there and starts making this encyclopedia. And they have a series of these crises that they, that they come to. And Seldon has predicted them through his psychohistory. And what we see is the foundation arriving at crisis after crisis. And we see how the events of history kind of coalesce around them into these inevitable outcomes. And a, and a big part of the story, and a big part of what we talk about on our podcast, is this tension between these two great schools of history, the great man theory of history and the bottom-up theory of history. The great man theory being that history goes from great man or great person to great person, and those great people drive the events of history. The bottom-up theory says that's not true at all. What's really happening is that social forces are doing what they do, historical forces are doing what they do, Great people show up at those times, but those great forces are going to determine history. And, and Asimov goes back and forth on these things. And, and throughout this series of what became three novels originally, uh, you know, he goes back and forth on this, uh, on this tension between these two theories of history. And it's, um, it, it's endlessly fascinating to, to uh, certainly to me at the age of 12 or 13 reading it, and being introduced into these great concepts. Asimov was not a guy who wrote a lot about little relationships between people. <laughs> he wrote about big ideas. Understatement. <laughs> yeah, these were the biggest ideas. And um, it's just it's just kind of fascinating to see the ebb and flow. And there's, you know, new things happen. A mutant arrives. There's another foundation that Selden established in order to guard the plan. And all of these, all of these great events uh, that go on. And that's and I, yeah, go ahead, Dan. I, I think from that description, you can see just hear it like uh, immediately why so many people were skeptical about the TV show, and then how a lot of longtime Asimov diehard fans were very disappointed or even angry about the TV show, and that you can't have a TV show which is about the unfolding of social forces. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, you need actual characters who get into exciting situations and, and who you learn to root for. And um, and, and maybe a, a woman or two would be nice, too. <laughs> I think to yes. Adam's credit, he had women. Uh, there were two women who were major <laughs> heroic tenders in Foundation. <laughs> but even so, even so, his treatment of them was you know, it's something yeah, we talk it, about in the podcast. As, Asimov's, Asimov's characterization of of uh, his, I mean, is distinctly noted. You know, it's notably from the 1940s. Well, um, also as as we note, it's also not only is it from the 1940s, but from a young man who apparently yeah. has never met a woman other than his mother. <laughs> right, his right, right. <laughs> so there's a lot of updating uh, that bring, makes the show feel much more 21st century. Uh, or or at least a 21st century vision of the far distant future rather than a 40s vision of the far distant future. Um, but, but you know, just the dynamics of the show, there's a lot more stakes invested in individual characters. And one of the things that we've been constantly talking about is um, is whether whether or not sort of Asimov's grand theme about the nature of history, is really coming through in the TV show. And um, we, I think our general uh, consensus is that it's, it comes through sometimes more than others. Um, and uh, so that's, 
it's a very different experience of watching the TV show than watch it than reading the books. Although I, I like both personally, but but they're just very different experiences. Well, as I mean, as a fan of the Expanse, I can I can dig that because if if like if if you've read and watched the Expanse, they're two very different experiences set in the same milieu with the same characters. And well, actually, some of the characters in TV show are a little different from the book, and so, but they do it in such a way that it's not like, hey, they changed that. It's like, all right, that works much better on screen than it did in the pages. Um, One thing I'll say for David Goyer, who's the showrunner here, is that he is aware of all of these questions. He's not blindly going in and saying, oh, psychohistory doesn't matter. I mean, he's he's involved in a kind of a running debate about this, the same topics that we're involved in. Um, you know, we don't always agree with the decisions he's made. Um, some of the things that he's done have been uh, absolutely fantastic. I mean, one of the things that that he wanted to do was maintain certain characters. Remember, it's a thousand year span. Everybody dies. Right? <laughs> but he's found ways to extend the life of characters and sometimes in extremely interesting ways. And not to spoil too much, but one of our favorite characters is that he's taken the emperor of the galaxy and he has turned him into this triple person. And this continuous cloning keeps bringing back the same people over and over again so that he can extend them indefinitely into the future. And that's they've cool. been- And, and that's the in the trailer, characters. so that's not a huge, that's not- Right, so it's brother, brother Dawn, Brother Day, and Brother Dusk. And um, frankly, it's been one of the most compelling things about the show. I love the scenes with the with the emperors and I want to see more of them. I'd watch a spinoff of just, uh, Hmm. Just the three of them and Demerzel, their their uh, their robot companion. I, I I I love those parts of the show. Well, the, the thing that I the book. when I heard they were making a series, um, you know, my first thought was not, oh my god, how are they going to do this? My first thought was they're going to have to change the crap out of this thing to make it watchable. Uh, so if they've done that in a way that's that's you know maintaining the the, the spirit of the book books. Uh, while still making it inter an interesting TV show, I'm totally down for that. Yeah, I mean, I think we we didn't know what to expect. And there were times when it may have strayed from what we thought they should have been doing. Um, but overall, I mean, I miss getting a new episode every week. And <laughs> that's, uh, I'm that's really a telling thing. anxiously anticipating season two. Yeah, you know, the, one of the things I talk about on the podcast is because, you know, Rick knows, I, I grew up as a comic book guy. Um, and so, you know, it's particularly in the in the 70s, there were all these just terrible adaptations where they tried to bring stuff to TV. And you could tell their attitude was, eh, this is just a bunch of crap for kids. Who the hell cares what we put on the screen? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, I mean, what I look for in an adaptation is if they have respect for the source material and... Um, I mean, certainly, certainly that's there, right? Um, there's lots of things that are different, but I think that I think the series turned out about as well as we could have hoped for. Just you know, including the stuff that I happen to not care for. Yeah. Well, in in a you know in a in a, a story as broad as Foundation, you know, you're not going to like everything. Okay. Um, just just and without without any more details than than just a yes or no, is the mule in the series? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, they have referred. I, I they guess. Have referred to the mule from the from the opening line of episode yeah. one. We yep. got a voiceover so that says the mule, the mule is going to be there. Yeah. Oh, Cobra okay. Mallow is going to be there. The mule is going to be there. We know that, uh, but they have not shown up yet. Interesting. One of the things I love about the books is that they're 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 kind of a, a snapshot of retro futurism. <laughs> like I I always loved because you know by the time I was reading them it was 1980 79 80 81 something like that uh, so they were 50 year almost 50 years old by that point um, and the fact that Asimov was you know was looking forward to a future where you could have an atomic watch you know, and and stuff like that do they do they do any of that stuff in the in the in the show or do they make it more like you know, when when people complain about Star Trek being like TOS is less sophisticated than what we've got now, um, do they do they deal with that at all? I think they tried to keep the tech updated. Uh, for example, one of the things that happens in the book um, that uh, one of the characters, Arcady Darrell, is writing a, an essay for school, and she's using a transcriber 
and you talk into it and it writes out in handwriting what she says mm -hmm. which is a, a great example of that kind of retro uh, retro futurism that you're talking about mm -hmm. i think they've avoided any real kind of that kind of thing where like uh, you know one of the things we talked about was one of the asimov books the end of eternity is the kind of seminal guardians of time working in a sort of a 1950s retro office and of course as somebody pointed out well when he wrote it it wasn't retro it was he wrote it in 1955 so it was actually <laughs> yeah. the way things were but but you see that in the umbrella academy they have a sort of a time cops who work in a 1950s retro thing um we saw it in loki loki yeah was big about um, that yeah they haven't really done that here where they've they've they've, they've made it futuristic um, when they've when it's come down to tech, I think. Another thing I really love, I, or, or I've grown to love over the years about uh, Foundation, is with the exception, and I, I know I, I mentioned this the last time we talked about it. Foundation, to me in my memory, I haven't reread it in, in ages, but it's just a series of really smart men outsmarting a bunch of really stupid men. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they do it by talking to each other in smoke-filled rooms. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he was also not too precious about his about his characters, especially over over the stretch of time, where you would have like a group that was established by one of these smart outsmarting guys, and then two hundred years later, they're as foppish and inbred and idiotic as the empire they were they were working against before. And how um, uh, it, it reminds there, there's a show. Uh, a, a play, and I forget the author's name. I, I did it back in grad school. It's called um, uh, the the persecution and assassination of oh hell, no, I can't remember the whole thing. It's it's the the persecution persecution and assassination of Jean Paul Marat as performed by the inmates at the in the asylum at Sharendon, something like that. Uh, we we just call it Marat Sad. Oh, as directed by the Marquis de Sade. That's where the Sade comes in, um, and it's it's a, a it's it's basically a story of the French Revolution as told by the inmates of this asylum in the of this 18th century asylum, and the the main premise of it is that the revolutionaries eventually, if they win, become the oppressors. They become the thing they were fighting against, and that was something we see in in Foundation a lot. <laughs> I think it was, was a Dan. Long really. way to get to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think it was Dan really who pointed out that if you look at the the stages that the foundation goes through in the books, they seem to be following this sort of historical cycle. They need to go through a religious phase. They need to go through a mercantile phase. They need to go through these various phases as they progress towards some endpoint. So I think that um, in each of those cycles, the winners eventually they do eventually turn into the oppressors again, but then a new a new wave comes and there's there's progress towards something at the end. And I think that's that's what, uh, possibly that's what Asimov's original changed, I think, over time. I, I think in the adaptation, the antagonists are not the, the simple, dumb bad guys. <laughs> that they often are in the books, as you mentioned, Rick. Um, this is one thing that I think the writer's room for this show has, has done better than Asimov, is give us really complex characters who almost always have a lot of depth. There's um, people on opposite sides of various conflicts in the show are equally smart uh are mm. capable um there's only one character that i can think of offhand from the books who is one of those dummies who is carried forward in the show as a dummy um but uh you know even he is given a, a kind of hero moment that he never had in the books mm -hmm. so um there is there is i think a lot of complexity um and um it's it's more like smart people going off against other smart people and yeah. one robot <laughs> yeah wait what really already <laughs> so i guess they made a decision that they were going to tell us that demerzel is a robot i hope i haven't spoiled anything for you 
Um, and so, yes. And, and part of what's kind of really cool about the TV series is the exploration of Demerzel's story. Because she has a lot of conflicting drives that, you know, she's in this incredibly difficult situation and you see it on her as, as time goes by. It's a very complex character um, in a very complex situation and uh, it's, it is one of the better parts, along with her, along with the, the Cleons, the, the Emperors, um, extremely and a lot of debate, and again, in which David Goyer has participated. You know, there was some okay. question that all of us had about is Demerzel a three laws? Because at times it appears that she can't possibly be be susceptible to the you know Asimov's original three laws of robotics. And Goyer has sort of confirmed, well, not sort of. Goyer has confirmed that she is a three laws robot, but there's other stuff going on as well, and that adds to the conflict. And it's it's been an absolutely tremendous character. And one of the things I I want to say about the show is that um, the performances by the actors uh, have been fantastic. We've remarked on it repeatedly. Laura Byrne, who plays Demerzel, Lee Pace, who's Brother Day, and uh, oh, he's awesome in anything. Uh, he's but he's been just fantastic, and and he's played sort of the same character in multiple modes that have slight differences between them, and it's just been really fascinating to watch. Um, but on and on, you know. I know Jared Harris was the big draw, I think, to Foundation as Harry Seldon. Mm -hmm. uh, but but all of the all of the characters have done just a, a fantastic job of of being you know as Dan said these these kind of three dimensional characters who have real backstories, who have real identifiable relatable drives. Even if some of them do some terrible things, you can you can relate to them as human beings. Well, I, one of the things I, I I appreciated just from from trailers and stuff is that. You know, uh, Asimov was really good at coming up with weird names for his characters, <laughs> which really lends itself to not necessarily being gender specific. Um, so the the person, and I can't I can't remember their name. The person that meets Harry Seldon at the spaceport, Gail Seldon, Gail Dornick, yeah, Gail Dornick, yeah, is, I mean, male in the book, but mm -hmm. female in the sh in the show. And I really can't see how that would make a difference other than, you know, it's good to get half the population on the screen. <laughs> well, Salvador yeah. Harden and, and Demerzel, you know, they all do gender switches. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that we embarked on is how the default for science fiction characters in the 1940s is, you know, if they didn't say anything about them, they were white men. Yeah. And, you know, we have, we have several, several women, several women of color, other people of right. color, uh, they've, they've, they've made a much more diverse cast and there's no reason not to. And uh, I think it's made, it's, it's, it's made for a better story. Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if y'all are, are, uh, have been, uh, watching quote unquote new Trek. Um, I know you're all Star Trek fans, uh, to some degree or other. We, we talked about that last time. Um, I'm, I'm loving discovery. It, you know, it has its flaws, but what show doesn't, um, but there is a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth in certain circles about how there's a lot of women and people of color on the bridge of the discovery as opposed to, you know, all a bunch of white guys and then, you know, a few, a sprinkling of, of tokens around the, the periphery. Um, and I totally lost my train of thought on that. <laughs> it's just, um, Oh, uh, hmm. oh, 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 right, right, right. Sorry. Um, there has been for, for years in, in certain scientific circles, this projection of what humans of the distant future would look like. And white is not on the, on the menu. <laughs> you know, we're eventually kind of a, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a Asiatic kind of Hispanic sort of looking, uh, Genotype, phenotype. What, what's the what's the the physical phenotype? Phenotype. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, phenotype is the expression of the genotype. Yeah. Um, you know, sort sort of a you know, olive skinned, more Asian. Uh, you know, I don't know. Anyway, 
And yet there's this huge, well, all right, huge, I think maybe is exaggerating. I mean, there's a few people making it huge. They're, they're making yeah. it loud is what they're And what I think say, it's yeah. pretty hilarious. Um, I, I love New Trek. Um, I love the characters. I think that the uh, the relationship, for example, between uh, Paul Stamets and Hugh Culber is, is the most believable relationship, the most relatable relationship yep. in all of Star Trek. And I say that as a, as a straight white man. Know, but mm -hmm. I, I look at their relationship and I, I go, that's just it's just fantastic. And um, I, I will say this though, I, I will defend the original series against the uh, it, your kind of charge of tokenism. I and think and that, that was that was just an oversimplification. But please, <laughs> go ahead. I mean, yeah, okay. So uh, you know, one of the one of the most striking scenes to me in in, the, in terms of that is something that is not made a big deal of but in the in the episode balance of terror where they're fighting the romulans mm -hmm. um for some reason the navigator has to go down to the phaser room and uh, he has to work the phasers manually and kirk just turns to lieutenant uhura and says take over and she yeah. gets off the communication station and goes down and she's driving the ship in the in the battle it's not commented on it's not a big deal it's just uhura you're the next one up get down there and you know, for for 1966, that was, that's, I was that was huge. Yeah, it was huge, but it was done in such an understated way. It's just, well, you're the next officer, who's you know who's up. Get get down there and, and drive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then and then in uh, in the animated series, uh, which you know not always the best, but uh, there was an episode where the entire bridge crew was incapacitated, and Uhura was was fourth in line, and she took over command of the ship and saved the day. Yeah, I think, you know, there's no question that, it, like, if woke was a term in the late 60s, people would have been calling the original Star Trek a woke mm -hmm. series. Like, yeah, it was clearly absolutely. on the progressive spectrum of what was being shown on TV that time. And now that look is dated. And mm -hmm. there's lots of ways in which it, it isn't a 21st century, <laughs> uh, you know, vision of the future. Uh, but it's, it's I, I don't understand people who are opposing the the supposed wokeness of discovery and and longing for a return to to the the vision of of tos um it, like discovery and the other new shows are playing the same role in the the 2020s that the tos played in the 1960s and i think it's you know if there's one place in which we should expect you know progressive visions of what's possible in the future you know uh, why not in sci-fi mm -hmm. uh whether that goes for star trek in all its various forms or the the um update to asimov's look on his characters that we got with foundation like people complained about next generation they complained about deep space nine they complained about you know to them at that time that was new Trek and an only original series was, was real Trek and some of the movies. And now the equivalent of those people are, are saying, well, TNG is real Trek and discovery is, is new Trek. And I don't like it. And it's ruining my childhood. And it's, it's, well, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's I, I can't remember how many times I heard in the cafeteria at school to, in 1987. <laughs> oh, they got this terrible old bald guy to, to replace <laughs> captain Kirk. This is never going to be any good. <laughs> I, I will I, I will freely admit I was one of those if it's not Kirk and Spock I don't want anything to do with it and then Encounter at Farpoint came out and I was like see because <laughs> I mean season one of TNG was not good Ooh, yeah. no, uh, in, in today's two. in today's milieu today's market there would not have been a season two they would have been cancelled at about right after Code of Honor I think yeah, yeah. Oh, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I also learned from that uh, there, have y'all seen the documentary about DS9, uh, What We Left Behind? I haven't yet. I plan to. It's wonderful. I, I really recommend it. Um, and it scattered throughout our members of the DS9 cast reading hate mail that they got, that the show got. <laughs> and the, the, the scary thing about it is, even though you know that they're, they're talking about Deep Space Nine, they could be the same invective you're seeing word for word just take out deep space nine and put in discovery or new trek or whatever you know uh card uh just just people love to complain 
I mean, I find the criticism of Lower Decks to be the funniest because they're like, oh, it's not taking Star Trek seriously. And That's the point. <laughs> it, that show loves Star Trek more than any of us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the point. Mm-hmm. I love Lower Decks. Uh, and, and yeah, every, you know, I, I've heard I've, in Prodigy. Have you all seen any of uh, Prodigy? Yep. You know, there are grown men <laughs> complaining about what's happening in a kid's show. And I'm sitting here going, there's finally a Star Trek my daughter is looking forward to seeing. And, mm-hmm. you know, okay, so the tech is a little wonky. It's a kid's show. Let it go. <laughs> right. Yeah, because eventually... Don't like it. Oh, go ahead, Joseph. I was going to say, eventually they're going to have to replace us because, you know, we're going <laughs> to age out of being Star Trek fans, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't like it, don't watch it. Exactly, exactly. The 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 whole there, there's a there's a whole subculture of hate watchers out there who just love to watch or listen or read something just to complain about it afterwards. And I just well, like, see. I, I don't know if it's just that they love being hateful, but I I because th- I think this is the dimension you've hit on the dimension that we didn't have back in 1987 is we have we have the internet, but then there are. You know these people they're podcasters they're 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 bloggers and they've discovered that spewing venom leads to clicks and leads yeah. to watches yep gets and, them hits yeah and gets them hits and so you know they're leading into that you know i mean who knows whether they all actually believe that nonsense true true uh you know according to several uh uh youtubers you know uh, alex kurtzman has been fired you know, a half a dozen times and, and Star Trek's been canceled over and over again. <laughs> I remember when they, they broadcast some episodes of Discovery on CBS mm-hmm. and the ratings were absolutely horrific because everybody who wanted to watch it had already watched it on, on yeah. Plus. Yeah. And I remember this one YouTube, I somehow I clicked on a YouTube video and not knowing what it was. And this guy was just crowing about how the ratings are so bad and now they're going to have to cancel it. And I told you so. And I'm like, what, what, what am I? And now there's five of them. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to the new, you know, to Strange New Worlds. And yeah. Apparently, there's going to be a, a Starfleet Academy one, and uh, maybe there's. Well, that's be a that's TV one of those that's one like one. always been just over the horizon. Yep. yep. And now they've taken a major character out of Discovery. Spoiler alert. And sent them to the Starfleet Academy, and so assume I assume that's going to be the. No, no, she'll, she'll, she'll be back on the discovery at the end of the season. You think? Okay, no, fair enough. Uh, well, I it, well, okay. It, if it's, it, I, I said, I'm sorry if it's a spoiler. No, I, it's, there, there's a there's a, a a show called The Ready Room on YouTube, yeah. hosted by Will Wheaton, um, where he interviews uh, people. From th- this show has gone through many iterations since the beginning of, of Discovery. This is the 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 least annoying <laughs> i love i love will wheaton sometimes it's like dude you can reel it back a little bit but uh you know will wheaton is awesome um but uh he interviewed mary wiseman last week and he straight up said can you tell us is is tilly going to be back and she's like yeah she'll be back. <laughs> okay. well fair enough but okay, yeah but uh yeah. you know there's the 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 uh is it going to happen or isn't it section 31 series which right. i'm while I love Michelle Yeoh, I just assume that show not happen because I despise mm. Section Thirty One. Ditto. The one thing Star Trek has done that has pissed me off irredeemably over the years, because uh, it's just you know I I I used to be a Roddenberry purist, and then I learned more about Roddenberry and realized even he wasn't. <laughs> um, but I think Section Thirty One, mm. yeah, Gene's vision. Um, <laughs> I think Section Thirty One would have been too far even in his in his estimation. It's funny, it brings me back to Foundation, because one of the things that we talk about is this so-called zeroth law. Yeah. Which is, I'll, I'll make it very quick, the first law of robotics is that no robot may harm a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. And the robots in the, in the Asimov series of books eventually come to the conclusion that there should be a zeroth law, which is that no robot may harm humanity or mm-hmm. through inaction allow humanity to come to harm. The problem is that the reductio ad absurdum of that is that the robots can do anything as long as they believe it's for the good of humanity. And it really opens the door to a lot of bad behavior. And that's really kind of a uh, pretty important subtext of the TV show. Is Is it? Okay. What is going on here? Well, it is if you're 
three laws nerds like we are, and we look yeah. at some of the things that go on and say, how does this fit into the three laws of robotics? And and it almost became a, a kind of a joke among us. Like the zeroth law is, it's a pretty powerful drug. It, it allows you to do. Yeah, I, again, I, I don't want to spoil for you who haven't seen it, but it pretty much the door's open to anything. And and you know, it's the same thing with Section Thirty One. Well, we're outside the rules because mm-hmm. because. The Federation needs somebody who's willing to do the dirty work, who's not uh, accountable, and it, it just seems completely at odds with what the Federation is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't have a problem with Starfleet having, you know, a, a black ops op, uh, outfit, you know, to combat the the Tal Shiar, or the Obsidian Order, any of that. But them having been there from the beginning and being absolutely unaccountable to anyone—that was the part that just, I just like, no, that's. Yeah. That's it's Deep worked. Space Nine writers going, yay, Gene's dead. We can finally do what we want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's the sort of thing, particularly in Star Trek, I think it's the sort of thing that needs to be used sparingly. Yeah. And I think the way the lot of these... Latching on to. Yeah, I think the way a lot of these things happen is that somebody writes something and it sounds really cool and it's sort of picked up in mid-story for an episode. Mm-hmm. And then people start exploring the implications of that. And it goes down a rabbit hole, and more more than one rabbit hole. I think you you know you saw that with the Borg. You see that with Section Thirty One, over and over again. You, you know you see a story that's a it's a really cool story, and then there's just too much time to examine the implications of that. Yeah. And it, it it just you know the implications are often pretty shocking. Well, yeah, that's and, true. and it also go ahead, Joe. Well, uh, what I was gonna say is it just they they. One of the things that I think Star Trek needs to do is just learn not to explain things. That would be nice. I mean, it's just you know, there's 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 some stuff, and you know, like you can just leave it to people's imaginations. By and large, everything new I learned about the Borg after that the the best of two worlds um, was less interesting than what was already in my head. Yeah. Well, Voyager, you know, Voyager is where they finally just totally diluted the Borg to the point where it was pointless because they would put they would put the Voyager in such dire straits that getting them out was such was so contrived and so uh, you know tortured logic wise that it just it just became silly it's it's a classic kind of TV producers conundrum we have a great idea that people love and we need to use it but the more we use it the less interesting it becomes although I will say that one of my favorite Voyager episodes is drone Yes, about the yes. the futuristic Borg, who uh, I, I thought that was just a fantastic episode. Even I though still it was crying at the end of that one, I do every time. Every time you will adapt. Oh You'll my god! Adapt, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's like know, I don't know if any of y'all are, are Doctor Who uh, fans, but uh, you know, the Weeping Angels was a, was like one of the best new bad guys ever created for Doctor Who in the last decade. And then they just kept going back to that well, and they got less and less interesting. Yeah, they should have left that alone after Blink. Yeah, but they just can't. They can't do no. it. You know, they because they're so popular. And yeah. yeah. Dan, I think you were, were you starting to say something, and I, I cut you off. Well, sure. So, I mean, I I, I sympathize with writers, uh, especially in massive franchises like Star Trek or Doctor Who, um, it's quite a task that you're giving people to both keep things fresh and keep it in line with this massive backlog that has like legions of diehard fans. And those are contradictory impulses. Um, and, you know, it, it's got to be a, a tough, tough balance to navigate that and so for the most part i ad- i admire the quality that people have continued to bring to these franchises and i i try when when there are like obvious missteps <laughs> um <laughs> you know i'm i'm able to kind of look past them but but i i agree like i i think you know with your original point rick you know section 31 i would count as one of those missteps right and it it would probably not be the best idea to double down on that with a dedicated series even though i love michelle yo and I, <laughs> I anything with michelle yo i will watch but um yeah give me a chance series he's supposed to be it's yeah. yeah it's i mean it's such a as a for a tv show if it was a tv show that was not star trek 
would be a great premise, mm-hmm. but but it would bring this darkness into the Star Trek universe, which is badly at odds with the overall themes of the franchise. And and I think it's probably best left unexplored. Well, like the mirror universe itself. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. they, it was great in Mirror Mirror, and it's taken a notch down every single time they've used it since then. Yeah. yeah. Although it did give yeah. us Michelle Yeoh's character, who was was great. Um, yeah, I, I I was really conflicted about the the Discovery Mirror Universe stuff because I I you know I don't like the Mirror Universe aside from Mirror Mirror and in a Mirror Darkly the the two Enterprise Mirror Universe episodes because they had nothing to do with the Prime Universe other than they found the the Defiant um, and I, I enjoyed that but it's still every time they go back the logic to get the same people in the same place but being so different <laughs> it just, yeah. it, just like, ugh, it makes me crazy um yeah, yeah. And, and i questioned in the last season of discovery when you had what 10 episodes in the season and they did a double episode 20 mm-hmm. of the of the show was this kind of love letter to michelle yo's character which you know we all loved we all loved giorgio empress giorgio but I questioned the use of that much time yeah. on that storyline. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm a, very much a late convert to, and it's not just the Mirror Universe stuff, but that's why I'm a late convert to Discovery, because the first the first two seasons in particular, well, I thought a lot of the, the writing was weak, but there was just a lot of problems with the ethics for me, and there's a lot of, it was just much darker than usual. Um, I kept watching it because I wanted it to be good but um, for me it wasn't hmm. it took me a while it took me a while yeah I think it's hard for for people of our age uh, who are you know we've been watching Star Trek pretty much since it started um, I, I think the newer stuff is a little harder for us to accept um, I've I won't say I have an advantage in in that you know as a podcaster and as a, a Star Trek slash science fiction podcaster um, I've had to you know watching it or not watching it was not an option and so uh, you know I had a choice I could grind my teeth and and hate every second of it and still have to watch it or I could find reasons to like it Um, and I I found that uh, it, it wasn't that hard to you know, to, to find reasons to like it. I could, li- I could, you know, make a laundry list of things I don't like about it. Freaking Klingon ships. What the hell, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm a huge hardware wonk from Star Trek going, you know, going all the way back. And so every time they change a ship design, it, t- it pisses me off. Although the, the, the enterprise that showed up at the end of season two, mwah, <laughs> it was a gorgeous ship. Um, you know, I and and then when the Klingons finally unveiled a real D seven, I was jumping for joy and weeping. And you know, it it it's ultimately it's a TV show, and yeah. you know, it's it's a TV show that's been very important to a lot of us for a very long time, but it's not ours, and this is what it's doing now. And I can either learn to like it or continue to hate it. Um, but I think as Discovery has developed, it's really it's really become classic Trek. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, it's it brought us some great characters. I mean, I, I love Saru, who's a fantastic mm-hmm. character. And one of the things about this cast, and maybe it's the time we live in with social media being what it is, but it seems like this cast is so accessible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're you know, very they, engaged. They interact. I mean, you know, every time I tweet something about Doug Jones, he, he, he likes it. You know, I mean, it, he's, he's there. Yeah, uh, my wife got me a, a Doug Jones cameo for my birthday a couple of years ago. Oh, and nice! It was so nice. He, he seems like such a nice guy, but so so into it. And uh, people like Wilson Cruz and and Noah Averback Katz, who played the uh, I've the interviewed him Ram. twice, and he is every bit as bubbly as you imagine. I mean, what a what a great story, right? The kid who goes to Star Trek conventions or is dragged to Star Trek conventions by his parents winds up a character on the show and married to you know a major character on the show. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just a fantastic story, and 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 I know that that's all outside the story. And I always complain about things that happen outside the story and how they shouldn't really affect what's going on in the story. But I can't help it; it does. You know, knowing that these people are so engaged really helps me to like the show. Well, and you know, when you think about the the story, 
all of the shows that we love, with the exception of TOS, took a couple of seasons to find their footing. A couple of 26-episode seasons. Hmm. None of these shows have even one equivalent season of of shows under their belt yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't like these you know ten to twelve episode seasons. I, I but I understand it. You know, their their production value is much higher. Um, and the the last episode, not not the one this week as we're recording, uh, but last week's episode of discovery which was called all what was it all things are possible or everything's possible something like that um was it was very episodic it was very much in the vein of old trek mm-hmm. in that you know it was a self-contained story the, the 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 general arc was there but it was a self-contained story uh it was we're gonna set up a whole bunch of thorny problems and wrap them all up in 42 minutes um and people weren't happy with that I was kind of like, oh, this is comfortable. I like this. That, I, that I, was I miss this. That that episode was classic Trek. That's one of the best things they've done on Discovery. Mm-hmm. But modern watchers didn't like it. I got a lot of feedback about they didn't care for the structure of it. Well, because it wasn't dealing with the bigger arc and all, and and everything was wrapped up in a neat little package at the end. And uh, so it's like you're not going to please everybody. No. Yeah. I mean, I think Lower Decks had the the strongest first season of any oh, yeah. show. Oh yeah, and yeah. I, I, it was mostly episodic with a, a little bit yeah. of story arc. Yeah, I would give you most consistent. I still have to give TOS the best season. Yeah, my son is shouting from the other room that strongest first season for a Star Trek show is a low bar, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> Well, we seem to have strayed away from Foundation a little bit. But <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, I was actually kind of hoping we talk about that all the time. What they we want to talk about? It yeah, now. and and you know, the last time we talked, we we talked a lot about Star Trek, and I love to talk about Star Trek. So. And uh, Joseph and I haven't had a chance to talk about Star Trek in a very long time, so we really haven't. So, um, but it is getting late, and uh, we all have jobs. So, uh, where can people find Star's End? It's on all of the major, um, I think it's on all of the major um, streaming services, not streaming services, what do you call them? Uh, platforms. Podcatchers, uh, I think is the Podcatchers, term things like Stitcher and Anchor and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Yeah, and, right. yeah we, we got an Anchor and it squirts them out to everything. But also, um, <laughs> you, you can always find our, our stuff on um, starsendpodcast.wordpress.com. Cool. And... If you'd like to check in with us for updates, check us out on Twitter at Stars and Podcast. Very cool. Oh, uh, one other thing, just really quickly, and no, and um, once you run out of foundation material, are you, have you thought about beyond that? Might might you move on to robots or another author or stuff like that? We've talked about it a little bit. Um, the robot series is just sitting there, the Caves of Steel, and etc. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea of saying that, that that would make a great TV series has come up as well, although that, we have nothing to do with that. But um, <laughs> there's plenty of other stuff. Um, I think we all enjoy doing the podcast a lot. Yep. And, uh, you know, I think we, we, we hope not to run out of material. Yeah. Just, and, and plus, David Goyer says he's doing 80 episodes of, uh, yeah, so, of, of oh, Federation. Okay. So that should keep us going. <laughs> They're good for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I think. We, uh, oh, go ahead, Dan. Well, even if we run out of uh, Asimov novels to talk about in the off season, I think he wrote a total of what three hundred books, five hundred. <laughs> most of them are nonfiction. They might be a little dry <laughs> so for the podcast can, audience. I'm, I'm waiting for the Dirty Asimov Limericks episode, the Dirty Limericks one, or the yeah. the Dirty Old Man, uh, the Dirty Old Man episode. Yeah, well, we've got lots. We've got lots to talk about. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, thank you guys very much for joining me this evening. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I promise not to let this one disappear. <laughs> so, uh, folks, thank you for tuning in. Please check out the, the, the Star's End. It's a wonderful show. It's a lot of fun. Um, I would love to hear what y'all think of Foundation because I'm finally going to have some time to watch it next week because I'm done with work. Yay! Time for the Christmas break and kids here all the time. <laughs> so, 
Um, so, folks, take care from all of us to all of you. Have a wonderful holiday. And uh, I'll, I'll be back in January with something, I would imagine, because I'm, I'm finally getting out of my funk and, uh, and missing podcasting. And this has just stoked the, the, the furnace. And I'm going to start recording stuff right away. So y'all take care. Merry holidays. Happy whatever. And we'll talk to you again really soon. Take care and bye bye. <laughs>